meaning today. We shall read today from the American Revised Version of 1901, Exodus 22, 25 and 7, then Leviticus 25, 35 through 38, and finally Deuteronomy 23, 19 and 20. First of all, Exodus 22, 25 through 27. If thou lend money to any of my people with thee that is poor, thou shalt not be to him as a creditor, neither shall ye lay upon him interest. If thou at all take thy neighbor's garment to pledge, thou shalt restore it unto him before the sun goeth down, for that it is his only covering, it is his garment for his skin, wherein shall he sleep. And it shall come to pass when he crieth unto me that I will hear for I am gracious. Now Leviticus 25, 35 through 38. Leviticus 25, 35 through 38. And if thy brother be waxed for, and his hand fail with thee, then thou shalt uphold him. As a stranger and a sojourner shall he live with thee. Take thou no interest of him or increase, but fear thy God, that thy brother may live with thee. Thou shalt not give him thy money upon interest, nor give him thy victuals for increase. I am Jehovah your God who brought you forth out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Finally, Deuteronomy 23, verses 19 and 20. Deuteronomy 23, verses 19 and 20. Thou shalt not lend upon interest to thy brother, interest of money, interest of victuals, interest of anything that is lent upon interest. Unto a foreigner thou mayest lend upon interest, but unto thy brother thou shalt not lend upon interest. That Jehovah thy God may bless thee in all that thou puttest thy hand unto, and the land whither thou goest in to possess it. The law of interest or usury is a very important one for us to understand. Failure to understand this law has led to some very unhappy consequences in Western civilization. The very word usury has come to have a bad meaning. Actually, it simply means interest. But usury today has come to mean exorbitant interest, and we have laws against usury, whereby the interest rate is fixed at such and such a maximum, which in itself is nonsense. Interest rates can be very low at 50 percent, 
you have inflation and your money is depreciating 50% a year. So interest rates are variable. They cannot be arbitrarily set by anyone because it depends on a number of factors to whom the money is being lent and the current rate of inflation. The law has no reference whatsoever here to the rate of interest. It has reference simply to the fact of interest. Now the law states, first of all, that it is with reference to the poor who are fellow members of the covenant, fellow believers. What is the meaning here of the poor, of thy poor brother? Is it every believer? This has been the meaning that the church has given to it for centuries. The medieval Talmudic regulations were similar. And so it was said that no Christian could lend to any other Christian on interest. This was a law passed by the church in the early medieval period. This was a law also passed among the Jews in the Christian era. And as a result, it became a sin for any one believer, Christian or Jew, to lend on interest. The result was that all kinds of technical regulations ensued whereby money was lent, but technically it wasn't interest. And so you had money lending throughout the Middle Ages, Jews lending to Jews, and Christians lending to Christians, and Christians to Jews, and Jews to Christians, with all kinds of technicalities used to evade the fact of interest. As a result, money lending did exist, but with a bad conscience, and with all kinds of evasions of the law. A radical change came about in Western history with Calvin. Luther echoed the medieval point of view. Anyone who was a moneylender was a very wicked person, per se. Any banker, therefore, was regarded as one of the lowest people in the community. This point of view not only was echoed by Luther, it was the medieval perspective, but also by the Anglican divines. And I will quote one of them very shortly. But Calvin broke with all of this and pointed out the original meaning. And I quote his commentary on Exodus 22:25. The question here is not as to usury as some have falsely thought, as if he commanded us to lend gratuitously and without any hope of gain. But since in lending, private advantage is most generally sought, and therefore we neglect the poor and only lend our money to the rich, from whom we expect some compensation, Christ reminds us that if we seek to acquire the favor of the rich, we afford in this way no proof of our charity or mercy. And hence he proposes another sort of liberality which is plainly gratuitous in giving assistance to the poor 
not only because our loan is a perilous one, but because they cannot make a return in kind, unquote. Calvin then went on to break with a whole pagan tradition, the tradition that was so deeply ingrained among the Greeks from Aristotle and among the Romans from Cicero, Plutarch, and all the rest, that interest in itself was an evil and that the moneylender and the banker were the worst blights of civilization, that they were, in effect, the Greeks and Romans held, a class of people in conspiracy against mankind. Calvin said this was absolutely wrong, that there was no ground whatsoever for this position in Bible, in the Bible. That, in fact, the Bible does permit money lending upon interest. But what this law does is to say that if there be a poor brother, a poor fellow believer who is in need, in such cases the loan must be without interest. You don't confuse charity with business, in other words. Before we go on to analyze the law a little more carefully, it is important to recognize what this total condemnation of interest has led to. The churchmen whom the early centuries and the Talmudic rabbis at the same time who said we will condemn all interest, we're trying to say, well, here is a subject where we have to decide between who shall lend and who shall not, according to the Bible, and to whom it shall be lent on interest and to whom it shall not be. So we'll simply say, since the whole matter is morally suspect, we will abolish interest entirely. Of course, they took the same attitude, did they not, on divorce. And the medieval church simply said, no divorce. Now, the Bible, as we saw some time ago, permitted it. Recognized that it was valid and justifiable under certain sub, uh, conditions, that it was a remedy for evil. Not in itself an evil, unless it were contrary to the law. So, the pagan hostility to interest was taken in by the Latin and the Greek church fathers who made a part of Western civilization. The results we have with us today. Whether you look at most conservatives or whether you look at the socialists, you find the same myth of the banker's conspiracy the moneylenders' conspiracy. There's not a shred of evidence to it. Never has been. But this myth is one of the most deeply rooted in our culture, and it goes back to the days of the Romans and the Greeks. And you can go back and find in the debates of Rome statements that the war that they are engaged on is just a war engendered by the money lenders and bankers in order to make more money. They didn't bring any evidence to bear on the charge then, 
and they still have not brought any evidence to support their charges. And so we have this myth that has been with us from pagan antiquity to the present. And there are many conservatives who, if you deny the validity of this myth, will be convinced that you are a sellout to the international bankers. And of course, talk to any socialist or Marxist and he affirms the same thing and will not allow you to confuse him with the facts. It is important for us, therefore, to understand what the Bible here teaches. It has led to a moral blinding of people, a fearful moral blinding. To cite an example of this, one of the most distinguished and very fine Christian leaders, the Anglican Dean of Durham, the Reverend Dr. Thomas Wilson. was a most distinguished citizen. He served on a number of diplomatic missions, held high governmental offices, as well as serving as a distinguished churchman. And yet he wrote an entire book, of most voluminous book, entitled A Discourse Upon Usury, in which he presented in very lurid detail the money lender, the banker, as the blight upon civilization. In describing the wickedness of money lenders, Wilson, Dr. Wilson, cited an example. His book is from 1572. And I quote, I know a gentleman born to 500 pound land. That is, that was the income annually from the land. And entering into usury upon pawn of his land did never receive above a thousand pound of neat money, or net money, we would say. And within certain years, running still upon usury and double usury, the merchants terming it usance and double usance by a more cleanly name, he did owe to master usurer five thousand pounds at the last, borrowing but one thousand pound at first, so that his land was clean gone, being five hundred pounds inheritance for one thousand pounds in money, and the usury of the same money for so few years. And the man now begged. I will not say that this gentleman was an unthrift diver's ways in good cheer. May in evil cheer, I may call it, in wearing gay and costly apparel and roistering with many servants, no then needed, and with mustering in monstrous great hose, in haunting evil company and lashing out fondly and wastefully at cards and dice as time served. And yet I do say 
he lost more by the usurer than he did by all those unthrifty means. For his vain expenses was not much more than a thousand pounds, because he had no more. Whereas the usurer had not only his thousand pound again, but four times more, which is five thousand pounds in the whole. And for want of this payment, the five hundred pound land was wholly his. And this gain only he had for time. Unquote. Now let's analyze this statement. First of all, it was a time of inflation. So the interest rates were high. Very high. After all, who today wants to lend out money at three and four percent? when the rate of inflation will eat up the value of your money at a rate of 5 to 10%. It is estimated it will be perhaps 10% by the end of this year. You're losing money if you loan it out at that rate. And if inflation is 50 and 100%, you are going to charge a rate of interest commensurate with the inflation. And there is a market in money lending where supply and demand also hold good. So that if there were cheaper rates of interest, he could have gotten it. But the rate of interest was high because it was the only economical rate for the day. There was no sin on the part of the money lenders. But by Dr. Wilson's own account, here was a young man who inherited a very goodly estate. He could have lived well all his life. He borrowed money. He wasted it. Gambled it away, spent it on wenching, on clothes, on any and everything. There was sin in the situation, but the sin was the sin of the young heir. And what the misreading of this law has done is to produce from distinguished theologians like Dr. Wilson to the present people, both socialists and conservatives, who whenever the subject of money comes up are ready to turn environmentalist, are ready to condemn an entire profession that is acting properly and in terms of God's law rather than the person who is guilty like this young heir. As a result, we have very serious moral leprosy infecting our world today. Just as Pavlov's dogs salivated when the bell was rung, the socialists and the conservatives salivate today when you mention international bankers or bankers of any kind, money lenders. 
Now let's turn again to the biblical law. The nature of this loan to the poor. Our Lord echoed this law. And he said, Lend to him that asketh. And turn them not away. Did this mean then that any poor believer that came to you and asked for money you had to lend to him? This would put us in a bind, wouldn't it, morally? Lots of poor, poor Christians around. There are a lot of very simple, truly believing Negroes in Los Angeles. Are you and I obligated to lend every last one of these who are in need and come to us? And the answer is no. The reading here is the poor brother that is with thee. What is the meaning of this in the Hebrew? Well, the textual scholars have made clear what the meaning is. The reference is to someone who is working for you. Supposing you have a farm. You're a Hebrew living in Judea, or an Ephraim, and you have several hired hands, and they are short of money. It is to these people who are in your employment, to whom you are commanded to lend, and the lending is an advance on their wages. This is exactly what the Hebrew has reference to. Well, that's a very different kind of situation than the medieval church was legislating about, is it not? An advance on their wages. It could be also a loan to help them out. But normally, it was an advance on their wages. Now, if you felt, and if you feel you have a a servant in your home who similarly needs funds that a pledge, a security should be taken because while they are believers, they're rather weak believers and they have bad habits, you have a right to exact a pledge. And the pledge that is here spoken of is the outer garment or tunic with which the field hands would sleep at night and it had to be returned at night. We'll come to that subsequently. But this point is important. What it does require is that anyone who has any substance must feel a responsibility to the fellow believers who are working for him. To help them out. To exercise a paternal supervision. To give them advances on their wages when needed or alone in time of emergency without interest. But if he feels security is required, he can exact security. We cannot be responsible for every poor person in the world, nor every poor fellow believer. 
God never asks impossibilities of us. So the law here is very specific, very precise, very limited. Thus, the prohibition of interest, of usury, is limited to a particular type of case. Charity is clearly the purpose of this law. Charity towards those who are a part of our household, of our business establishment. But even here, we are not to confuse charity with a gift or with loss or with foolishness. The reasonableness of this law. A pledge or security can be required if need be. Gary North has written on this point and indicated that it forbids fractional reserve. When the prophets, in a number of passages, indict usury, they are indicting the loans to workmen at interest and the seizure of their property for failure to meet the terms. There is, as I indicated, a reference by our Lord to the same kind of loan without interest in Luke 6, 34 and 35 and elsewhere. Our Lord always spoke with the background of the law. And he simply said that they had the obligation to lend to anyone who asked of them, that is, who was in their employment. You can never take a text out of its context. And every word of our Lord is spoken in the context of the law. His approval of commercial loans with interest is apparent in Luke 19.23 and Matthew 25 and 27. We must state further then that all loans in the Bible commercial loans are charitable, are subject to the Sabbath law. That is, they cannot extend beyond six years to believers. To unbelievers, they can't. Deuteronomy 15, 1 through 6 indicates this. Short-term loans alone are permitted to the believer because he has no right to mortgage his future. Man's life belongs to God, and it cannot be forfeited to men. The Sabbath, therefore, must be observed, the Sabbath year. Debt cannot be prolonged, and basic to the Sabbath rest is debt-free living. The standard is to owe no man anything save to love one another. And Moses declared, if this law be kept, there will be no poor among you. The unbelieving are excluded from the charity of this loan. That is, you can make such a loan to the unbeliever without interest, but you're not required to by the law to your unbelieving employees. Moreover, there is no Sabbath release for the unbeliever in his debt. That is, his loan can be for 10 years or 20 years. The reason is that the Christian is a free man in Christ. 
But the ungodly are already slaves by nature, and they cannot be treated as free men. Their only solution is regeneration. The scripture cites the deliverance from Egypt and says, Obey this law. Remember the Lord thy God delivered you out of Egypt. God reminds his people that the purpose of the law is to, to deliver man into freedom, just as he delivered them out of Egypt into the freedom of Canaan. The purpose of the law, in other words, is man's freedom under God. To speak of deliverance from law is to speak of deliverance from freedom. Law is the way of freedom. Next, to return to the matter of the pledge or the pawn as a security for debt. Certain kinds of pledges are specifically forbidden. And we read, for example, in Deuteronomy 24, no man shall take the mill or upper millstone to pledge, for he taketh a man's life to pledge. Deuteronomy 24, 6. In verses 17 and 18 of the same chapter, Thou shalt not rest the, just, uh, the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless, nor take the widow's raiment to pledge. But thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in Egypt, and Jehovah thy God redeemed thee then. Therefore I command thee to do this thing. Then in the 10th through the 13th verses, When thou dost lend thy neighbor any manner of loan, thou shalt not go into his house to fetch his place. Thou shalt stand without, and the man to whom thou dost lend shall bring forth the pledge without unto thee. And if he be a poor man, thou shalt not sleep with his place. Thou shalt surely restore to him the pledge when the sun goeth down, that he may sleep in his garment and bless thee, and it shall be righteousness unto thee before Jehovah thy God. Now, here again the reference is to workmen working for you. The pledge in any case, whether it be for a workman who is in your employment or to anyone else, cannot be anything essential to a man's work or living. His tools cannot be pawned. A widow's raiment cannot be pawned. Thus, things essential to the life or to the dignity of the person cannot be made the security for a loan. Similarly, no man has the right as a borrower to risk those things which are basic to his life and liberty. He cannot borrow those things, even though someone be ready to make a loan against them. Finally, failure to restore a pledge or a pawn is spoken of in Scripture as robbery. When repayment is made, the pawn must be restored. And Ezekiel 18:10 through 13 links such failure to restore a pledge with pagan worship, adultery, and murder as a fearful offense. Today, the biblical law has rapidly given way to the state as the dispenser of charity. 
And today, increasingly, money lending is being taken from banks and money lenders and given to the state. The state, supposedly, is to be more charitable. And today, billions are being lent to poor men, poor businessmen, usually, by the federal government. The attempt, for example, to create black capitalists is proving to be a total loss. Our money-lending institutions have enabled black men to get started in business and done it successfully because they've done it on a sound economical basis. The government doing it on a charitable and political basis today, government charitable basis, is throwing away our tax money in vast sums. The state dispenses charity to those who meet the state's test. The result is it enslaves men politically with its welfare program. The biblical law is the path to freedom and to true brotherhood. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee for thy word. And we pray that the correction of thy word may soon be forthcoming. Make us instruments, our Father, whereby our generation is corrected by thy word, established by thy grace, and made again a holy people unto thee. Bless us to this purpose in Jesus' name. Amen. Are there any questions now, first of all, with respect to our lesson? Yes. You're assuming now a foreigner who is working for you in, in your employment. Well, you can lend it to, to a believer on interest, you see. There is no harm on loans on interest to fellow Christians on, in what is a business proposition. It is only to those who are working for you who are believers where you can make a loan without interest in cases of need. There it is required. Usually it's an advance of wages, but a loan too when necessary. Mm -hmm. Oh, I see, yes. No. There, there need be no change. It is up to him then, as a believer now, to extricate himself from debt. But you are not obligated to change a loan to a non-believer when he becomes a Christian, to reduce the terms, in other words. If he requests that the terms be shortened, all right, but the responsibility is his. He contracted it, 
and the terms remain as per time of contract. Yes. bankers of the world. Those are the various secretaries of the treasury and the exchequer and so on. It's the governments of the world who have established things like the SDR and so on, and it is they who impose their regulations upon free bankers. Banking is largely socialized today. It is so heavily controlled. The form of freedom is maintained, but the regulations are increasing all the time. So it's not the bankers. It is the various states. Yes. He meant the physically, materially poor. Now, he wasn't saying necessarily that this is going to be always true among believers. He said... Uh, the poor are always with you. But Moses also says, there shall be no poor among you in any area where you live faithfully to the law. Here's a person who's trying to destroy you. 
it's going to deteriorate you if you don't face the fact of life as, what, as to what he is. This doesn't mean you get down and crawl on all fours like he is or act the way he does. You maintain the law in relationship to him. Yes, Uh, yes, uh, you were absent when we considered that. That's a mistranslation there. Uh, they were to ask, in effect, for wages due to them, compensation, and the Egyptians gave it gladly to get rid of them. So it was entirely different. Our time is just about up, and it was suggested that I report briefly uh, on the Foundation for Economic Education conference that I attended Friday and yesterday. Time is brief to go into all that was said. Here are a few items that I thought were of interest. Uh, whenever the take of income by tax levies, it was pointed out, reaches a point where it is not economical for the state to push immediately for more, the state begins inflation. So when the percentage of taxes reaches 20 to 25 percent, inflation sets in in any economy. And today, of course, it is over 40 percent that is taken by the government. As a result, inflation then becomes a way of life. This points to, I'm just giving scattered facts, since 1914, the French franc has lost 99.5% of its purchasing power because of socialism. They are a, a number of years ahead of us, but we are gaining on them now. The seriousness of inflation in our generation is greater than ever before in history for two reasons. We are the most specialized people in all of history, first of all. In other words, we are not as people were a few generations ago who could do a number of things like raise their own food and provide their own clothing and be to a degree self-sufficient. We are specialized. So the breakdown that is coming is all the more deadly. And second, we are dependent on the free an uninhibited exchange of goods and services. Now, this exchange of goods and services depends in turn on two things. One is on the integrity of the money. You have to have a sound money, and this is beginning to disappear. And the other is the integrity of people. Consider what happens when you can no longer trust people. All the buying in the stock market, in the fruit market. And uh, Mr. Reed pointed out that he started working when he was quite young in the fruit market at 
to Christ. And he stated that the man with whom he worked uh, would just by raising his finger purchase 10, 20, 30 carloads of fruits and vegetables for which settlement would be made at a later date. And the market could change so he could lose money on that shipment. He might buy it thinking the price was going to go up and the next day the price of the cantaloupe or lettuce would go down and he'd take a loss, but they would settle up without any problem. When the integrity which makes this kind of trust goes, then the flow of goods breaks down. And there are signs of a crack in the wall here also. Then this point from uh, Ed Opitz's talk on majoritarianism, Herman Feiner and the Road to Reaction, which is a book against free market economics, makes this statement. In a democracy, right is what the majority makes it to be, unquote. In other words, right in any moral sense is gone in terms of modern thinking. Uh, Opitz also called attention to imposter terms that are commonly used today. He said most politics today uses what used to be called imposter terms terms that are not a reality, like the people. Who is the people? Politicians are always speaking in the name of the people or the public. And he said, when someone speaks in the name of the people, put your hand on your wallet for you are about to be had. I think especially good was Dr. Rogie's lecture on the chimera of monopoly and he began by telling a little story he said which is partly true he said he has a bird apartment house on a pole in his backyard and he said uh, the problem where they live is that uh, they want these bird houses for the purple martins the very good birds but the starlings bad birds very often beat out the martins for the birdhouses or bird apartments that they put up. And he said on this particular occasion, he and his neighbor were watching the birds flying around it and apparently uh, fighting with one another to get it. And uh, he said uh, he bet on the martins and his neighbor was betting on the starlings. So uh, after a while, his neighbor said, well, uh, I think the starlings have won your uh, birdhouses. And he said, I think the martins have won it. And uh, they argued a little while, and finally Dr. Rogie said, well, to tell the truth, I'm not sure I can tell a martin and a starling apart. I don't know too much about birds. And uh, he said, especially after two or three beers, I'm not sure I can tell them apart. And his neighbor said, well, since you're honest, I'll be honest too. I don't think I can tell a starling from a martin. And Dr. Rogie said, this story illustrates the situation with regard to the court. Who is the bad bird and who is the good bird? The court can't make up their mind. 
So that one and the same time, for example, he said some men were sent to uh, prison in the big electrical case just two, three years ago for setting a price and also for not having a, uh, for uh, the exact opposite, for undercutting prices. So he said, in that case, who are the Martins and who are the Starlings? Both sides of something were called that. And he made the point that you have a monopoly only when you have governmental interference. And he said all the textbook definitions of competition are invalid, and the government court definitions are invalid by and large, and so they are continually fining people and imprisoning them for directly opposite things. And he said one of the most ridiculous cases not too long ago was when one enterprising uh, young person back east got busy and decided they had baseball cards some years ago, you remember, when some of us were boys with pictures of the athletes on them. Well, why not give baseball cards with bubblegum? So he contacted a bubblegum company and said, uh, I'll get the cards and print them up if you will get uh, the, uh, give them out with your bubblegum as a premium. And it'll make you money, it'll make me money. Well, he went out and he tied up a lot of the top baseball players with uh, the card idea, $5 for a five-year use of their cards. The ball players were glad to have the kids get their cards and their pictures and save them. A big deal, you see, $5 for five years. That made a nice little income for this person because he thought of reviving this use of playing cards. Well, immediately, he was taken to court for operating a monopoly. A government agency filed charges against him as a monopolist. Now, anyone else could have gone into the business. He wasn't driving out any competitors, but he was a monopolist. Fortunately, it went before a judge who had a sense of humor and he threw the case out. But it very often is not thrown out. And he cited the case of one of the bigger drug companies. And he gave the figures. Company A in 1951 had 32% of the drug market. Company B had 22%. Company C, 19. And Company D, 18. They just about controlled the market. In 1952, Company A dropped from 32% to 9%, and uh, the other companies picked up the slack. In 53 and 54, Company A, one of the biggest drug companies, lost out entirely on the market. Practically went out of business. And a new company, uh, Company F, got 59% of the business with some new drugs. And Company D was out of the market. B and C had 10 and 16% between them. Company F in 57 had 60%, but in 1958, Company F dropped to 14%, and a new company, Company H, got 78% of the market. 
Then in 1965, Company A, which had been out of the market for 12 years, came back with some new drugs and got most of the market and wound up in court as a monopoly. Now here is a case, he said, as clear-cut of competition as you can imagine. And he said, no monopoly, no cartel has ever worked without support of the state. Fair trade laws are cartel prices. Trade unions are cartels with very special privileges and immunities. They even have the right to use violence, the most important monopoly. And he went on to cite the farm program as a giant cartel. And he said there are over 200 farm products in the commodities market. Twelve of them are consistently in trouble. And these are the twelve where the government has interfered. And they cannot recover since the government has interfered. So his point, of course, was emphatically there can be no monopoly without government interference. Two very brief things, and then we are through. From the Stanford Observer, an official Stanford alumni paper, some interesting facts, because these are things I've often said, and since I've been away from Palo Alto for several years, I no longer see the evidence, but this was passed on to me. I've made the point that Stanford is not a private university. Private universities no longer exist. There are only state universities and federal universities and colleges. The federal government, they're very unhappy in the lead article, has cut back its giving by two years, from 44 million in 1967 to 68 to 42 million in the last year and 40 million in the current academic year. In other words, Stanford is, has been getting 40 to 44 million in recent years, each year from the federal government. What about the private support? This totaled 29 million last year. 29 million a year against 42 million last year. Is it a private university or is it a federal university? Is any wonder that Stanford doesn't care what the alumni think or say? When you add up those figures of 29 million last year, what you have to say also is that a lot of that was from endowed funds so that they can thumb their nose at the day-by-day giver. They've already got a lot of this, and the donor cannot touch it. Well, one final note, a little bit of humor from the current Forbes magazine. Chappaquiddick, Irish verse. You know what Chappaquiddick is. That's where Senator Kennedy had his little mishap. And this editorial by Malcolm S. Forbes reads, one of the business community's more dynamic tycoons has a great sense of humor. The other day he gave me a slip of paper on which were these alleged headlines from the Dublin, Ireland dispatch. 
Quote, God save Senator Kennedy as Catholic girl drowned. Devout pair believed to be on way to midnight mass. Ted prays for almost nine hours before leaving scene. Irish governor, government blasts Italian builder a faulty bridge. And with that, we are adjourned.